0: To 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're continuing our verse-by-verse, book-by-book study of the Bible, and uh, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're in verses 17 through 34 this week. Open your Bible, navigate over there on your device so you can follow along. The topic, for behaving like gluttons at the potluck prior to the Lord's Supper, some of the believers in Corinth were being severely disciplined by God title of our message, Gluttons for Punishment. Father, this morning as we take a look at this text, um, there's a temptation to, to think that we know quite a bit about it because we have uh, celebrated the Lord's Supper, uh, you know, as, in our career as Christians. I pray that, uh, not that we would get a fresh look, but that we would see what you meant in context, uh, first to the Corinthians and then how it might apply to us. As always, Lord, we we'll would be looking in terms of grace and mercy uh, and uh, of Jesus being revealed, Lord, in the word so that we could be changed from glory to glory to be more like the Son of God. We thank you and praise you. We do it in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. Pippin was distraught to learn that Aragorn was not going to stop on their journey to Weathertop until nightfall. What about breakfast, the hobbit asked? That's pretty good, right? No, it's actually pretty good. When Aragorn answered that that's the last of it, had already eaten breakfast, Pippin said, we've had one, yes, what about second breakfast? He went on to talk about elevensies, lunch, afternoon tea, dinner, and supper. He failed to mention brunch, which is different than elevensies, I learned. And elevensies is a real thing that people Tolkien didn't invent it. And some people refer to... This is true, too. Linner. It's somewhere between lunch and dinner. There are banquets and barbecues and buffets and blue plate specials. There are kids' meals and meals on wheels. There are picnics and potlucks. The believers in Corinth came together every Sunday evening for two meals, a potluck that preceded the Lord's Supper. It may have started well, but it had deteriorated. Verse 21. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, One is hungry and another is drunk. The potluck had gotten out of control. Correction was in order. And as Paul gave it, the Holy Spirit seized the opportunity to give the church additional insights into the meal that really mattered, the Lord's Supper. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, when you come together as the Lord's temple, wait for one another. Number two, when you come together to the Lord's table, be a witness to others. Take a look, first of all, at coming together as the temple of the Lord. Little Country Church by Love Song. How many of you are familiar with that song? Remember that from the early Jesus movement. Great anthem of that time. It's end lyrics, long hair, short hair, some coats and ties, people finally coming around. Looking past the hair and straight into the eyes, people finally coming around. It's a praise for the Lord bringing believers together as one in Christ and as equals in Christ. Racial distinctions, class distinctions, age distinctions, economic distinctions, all are set aside because we are members of his body. Men and women, as we learned last week, retain their gender and respective roles as established at creation, but we too are equals. Someone once said, the ground below the cross is level. And so we are all on level ground, equal with one another in the eyes of God. The behavior of the believers in Corinth prior to and at the Lord's Supper was undermining their oneness and their equality. They were acting separately and independently, and that is not a good thing. And so verse 17, now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, Since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. Their coming together is repeated about five times in this entire section. That phrase, I mean. It's a technical term for the meetings of the church, what we would call the official meetings of the church. Each week on Sunday evening, they came together to eat a common meal. Some call it the agape feast or the love feast. We would simply call it a potluck If you're super spiritual, you want to call it a pot faith. We call it a potluck and pretty soon all the people who are looking for a pot faith leave. No, I'm just kidding. We'd call it a potluck as each family or member who had the means would bring food for the meal. But instead of being together, some were separating from others, partaking their own food while ignoring the needs of others, thereby fostering a division based on socioeconomic status. Be like if I came to the Harvest Hallelujah happening with my famous award-winning Beyond Meat Hot Sausage Three Cheese Lasagna. We had some earlier in the week and now the leftovers are this afternoon. I went out and bought some special bread for it last night. All the flavors are coagulating in there, getting, you know how it's better the second time. I'm going to scarf on that this afternoon, but that's at my house and that's fine. And you're not invited, but so (laughs) I'm not bringing it to the potluck. If I did, I'd want to eat it all, but uh, I would. So it'd be weird. Their behavior was not for better. It was for worse. Verse 18 for first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. There's no mandate in the Bible to have a potluck before celebrating the Lord's supper. It was their own idea and you know, it's a good one in that the wealthy could benefit the poor and that both believing and non-believing onlookers and attendees could see a physical, concrete example of the spiritual oneness Christians have. People from all walks of life there in Corinth, all levels of society coming together, bringing, some bringing lots of food, some bringing no food, all sharing together and, and growing together. Instead, there were divisions, which we'll see explained more in Verse 21. Paul then said, in part, I believe it." He obviously did believe it because he was addressing it. Have you ever used the expression, I just can't believe it? When in fact, what you've been told is true and you know it's true. Still, you say, I just can't believe it. And so that maybe is what Paul is getting at. I'd have to know languages better to say that it is, but that's what it sounds like. Verse 19, for there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. This word translated factions in some of your Bibles is heresies. That's accurate, but not the way we normally think of it as a teaching heresy. Factions is just another way of saying divisions. And so people were splitting up and in the sense that those with a lot of food were eating their own food and restricting others from eating it. Then there's this curious phrase about there must be factions. Gordon Fee says this sentence is one of the true puzzles in the letter. How can he who earlier in the letter argued so strongly against divisions now confirm a kind of divine necessity for there to be divisions? Well, first of all, there's nothing in Paul's words that indicate they were a good thing. It's never a good thing to have division. It's a must given that we are all flawed in our bodies of flesh prone to yielding to our carnal impulses rather than to God the Holy Spirit. Uh, We're the temple of the Lord on the earth when we gather but we're all flawed in our various ways and there are problems between us. And so that's what he's saying. He says, there's just going to be trouble. Uh, You know, if you're there, there's going to be a problem. And and if I'm there, there's going to be a problem at some point because we are not perfected. Factions happen, therefore, and when they do, those who are approved may be recognized among you. Think of it this way. All of a sudden, they decided to have a potluck preceding the Lord's Supper. And as they did, and as it developed, they noticed that some of the individuals were staying to themselves, eating their own food. They did not want to eat with others, certain others. And it was different than cliques. I mean, this is an actual separation of uh, maybe Jew from Gentile, for example. This is a problem the apostle Peter had when he visited one of the churches he would eat with the Gentiles until some Jewish believers came. And then he would refuse to eat with the Gentiles. And Paul had to rebuke him publicly for his behavior. And so it was more than just these guys had lasagna and you didn't, you know, it, it, there was a revealing of the heart. And so all of a sudden, somebody that you'd been worshiping with for months or years, perhaps, now you see they actually have a prejudice in their heart. They, they don't like slaves. They don't like Jews. They don't like Gentiles. They don't like, you know, the poor, and they don't want to have anything to do with them when they have a meal together. And so this uh, potluck is an unexpected outing of people who have severe problems in their heart in far, as far as biblical Christianity. And those who didn't have those problems are the approved. They're the ones who are understanding this concept of unity and equality as the body of Christ. And so when you have these divisions, sometimes you can see who's approved and who's not. Those who are not approved are not handling things well. They're, you know, running around saying terrible things, going behind your back, creating division, uh, you know, rather than trying to solve it. And so it's a very interesting comment that Paul makes. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Because they were dividing their partaking of the bread and the cup could in no way be considered a Lord's Supper. They were going through the motions, of course, but they were denying the reality of Christ's death that brought them all together as one. And so by their actions ahead, it was like doing two opposite things. Let's show that we're divided and then let's show that we're united. It doesn't work that way. It's one or the other. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. One is hungry and another is drunk. The Corinthians were mostly Gentiles who had been saved from pagan religions. In those religions, the worship of the deity was often accompanied by a feast in which meat sacrificed to an idol would be eaten, and then drunkenness would ensue. And so they were carrying this over into their potluck. Uh, They apparently felt that they had a liberty to do this, And they thought that, or I don't know what they thought, but it it was common for them. It's not an excuse, but this is where they were coming from. Takes his own supper indicates what I said. They ate the food they brought, not sharing it, leaving others hungry. Uh, Probably even leftovers. You know, they had some, you got some leftover lasagna there? Yeah, I'm going to take that home. Uh, That'll last another, that's lunch tomorrow. And so the whole thing was weird and bizarre. Potlucks are an interesting situation. Though we, I, I've told you before about a, a guy down in Calvary, you know, called Potluck John. He's a stereotype. We, now, before I tell this story, we loved John. We helped John. We gave him, you know, took care of him, made sure he had his daily necessities. He lived out of a Dodge Duster. Remember those cars? Um, you could live out of one of those cars. They had a trunk the size of this room. But uh, anyway, and he had a window washing business, and, and John wasn't all there, but he came to the church faithfully, and, and we did what we could to help him. But potlucks became a problem, because potluck John would always be early and first in line. He'd start eating before prayer, and man, he'd have two plates overflowing and a lunchbox full of stuff, and you'd get there and you'd say... I thought eight pieces of cheesecake, if I was sixth in line, I might get one, but it, it was gone. And so we we literally had to say, John, please, you know, go, we want you to go last. Uh, and you can eat anything you want, last through line. And if you don't get something, we'll take care of it. But it was just embarrassing and weird. So don't be a potluck John. That's, <laughs> that's going to that's gonna be our new potluck campaign. We should do a series of... Uh, What what do they call them? I don't know, never mind. What, Paul says, verse 22, I like that. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. I should mention that some commentators argue that Paul was telling them to just quit gathering before the service for a meal. That wouldn't solve the underlying problem. The problem wasn't gluttony or drunkenness. Those were symptoms that there was a root problem. It was what was going on in their heart, not wanting to be around these certain groups of Christians. More likely, he was pointing out that those who brought sumptuous baskets of food only to consume it themselves were shaming the poor. They obviously were thinking they were and acting as though they were superior to the poor rather than reaching out to equalize things. The church of God isn't the building, it's the saints, The behavior of the wealthier members was showing spite on the poor members. How do you think that's going to play at the judgment seat of Christ? That's not going to be rewarded. That's a wood, hay, and stubble situation. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not. This makes it sound like they were proud of their love feast. Maybe they thought it was cutting edge, trending, to add something to their liturgy. In other words, Paul had, had left them with the, I, the understanding of, of sharing the Lord's Supper and celebrating the Lord's Supper. We'll see as we go on in the book, they met Sunday evenings, and that's when they did it. And so maybe they thought, hey, let's add something to that. That's not enough. And churches do this all the time. It's like, what we're doing is not enough. Why? Because the church next door is doing something different. And people might go over there. And then they have to do something different. And then pretty soon you're going to a church you can't even recognize that it's a church because everything's different. And so this is how it starts. It starts with a, which actually was a good idea, but it got out of hand. And so they added this and they thought when Paul gets here, he's gonna think, wow, these people really took me seriously and they built on my ministry and have added to the Lord's Supper something that's really wonderful. And that could have been true if their hearts were right, but it just wasn't. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if, uh, excuse me, drop down to verse 33, because I want to take the last two verses together as this section. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment, and the rest I will set in order when I come. Hungry in this context means if you're going to scarf down the food. In that case, eating at home prior to the potluck might be a practical suggestion. If you know that you just can't help yourself, when you get there and Pastor Gene's lasagna is on the table, you're going to take cuts in line and just start eating it in line. Just eat something at home. Call me and ask me to make some for you. Something like that. But, you know, so eat at home. Uh, depending, now, I, here we have the fab, right? fabulous potlucks. The Triple H, all the chilies and all the pies, people going for awards, Italian food, Mexican food. You know, it's just, it's an amazing thing. Sometimes I've gone to potlucks or been invited to potlucks, and I think, yeah, I know what's going to be there. Let's stop and eat on the way. And then if I'm pleasantly surprised, I can, you know, oh, yeah, I'd like some of that. But if not, I say, you know, I'm just, just not that hungry. Just a roll will do, you know, that kind of a thing. There's a whole strategy for potlucks. I should write a book on potlucks. Call it Potluck John and Other Stories. But anyway... <laughs> The judgment's going to be described as we go back and comment on the other verses. I used to wish we knew what the rest that Paul would set in order was. But in fact, that would limit our freedom if we knew exactly how they celebrated the Lord's Supper in Corinth, because we'd feel obligated to do it exactly like they did in terms of cadence and timing and elements and all of that. And So it's, it's left purposely vague by the Holy Spirit so that we don't get locked into a ritual. Verse 33 is fundamental, not just to a potluck. It has broad application. Substitute other things in place of eat. When you come together to blank, wait for one another. By wait, we mean prefer, put others ahead of you, humble yourself. If you practice waiting for one another, you can't go wrong because that's what we ought to be doing and it reveals the right heart. Second, when you come together to the Lord's table, be a witness to others. Christians are trending towards rediscovering the Lord's Supper. That's what they're calling it. The claim is that we're not doing it right, and we haven't been for centuries. They say we need to get back to the practices of earlier believers. Hank Hanegraaff, who inherited the title The Bible Answer Man, recently joined the Eastern Orthodox Church. Regarding the Lord's Supper, he says it is not a mere memorial, but that the real presence of Jesus in the elements is a mystery that cannot and need not be explained. He teaches that this is the belief of the early church. By the way, a mystery in the Bible is something that is revealed, not concealed. Uh, And so I think what he didn't want to use the word, but I think the word I'm thinking of is mystical. It's something mystical that we don't understand. Now, this idea that somehow the real presence of Jesus is in the celebration of the Lord's Supper does not draw me closer to Jesus. It distances me because I have this real presence, this mystery, when I'm at his table. Throw in the practice that only a priest can serve me the elements, and I'm even further from intimacy. How did we get from the simple uh, celebration of the Lord and his 11 disciples in the upper room and in what is described in the New Testament to such an elaborate ritual in which an intermediary must act to give you the elements. I had occasion on Friday to attend a Catholic funeral mass, first mass I'd been to in I think 38 years, pretty much the same as I remember. And um, I don't want to denigrate anybody or, or I don't want to be sarcastic. I just sat there and I thought, I can't imagine that this is what Jesus had in mind when he instituted the Lord's Supper. I can't imagine him doing it that way. Uh, I can't imagine that's what Paul had in mind. Think of, those of you who have a Catholic background or you know what I'm talking about, think of all the pomp and circumstances and the robes and the hats and the incense and everything, all of that, and then put yourself in first century Corinth. None of that was going on, none of that. All of it's an addition. You'll read none of that ritual in the New Testament. Everything is added to it, kind of like that potluck was added, and it didn't go too well. And so I want to, we need to be really careful. These people who say we're not doing communion right, they want to do what the early church did. A lot of times they're talking about the medieval church. That's an early church, and that is what the medieval church did. They wore robes, and they had a priest, and they had incense and peppermint, uh, Some of you would recognize that as an old rock song. But uh, I had to do it. My mind works that way. So, yeah, so no one's doing communion. And and I don't want to go off on a tangent, but I already have. Just one more point. You'll think this is silly, but it's actually, if, if you're going to say we need to do communion the way, or the Lord's Supper, the way the early church did it, so that we can get back to the real understanding of it, the early church did it, It seems in Corinth as a supper, as an evening event. It wasn't the Lord's elevensies. you understand what I mean? But most churches, when do they share in communion? Sunday mornings. Who gave you the freedom? If you're returning to the original uh, book, who gave you the freedom to have the Lord's supper on Sunday? Oh, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter when you have it. Well, then there's my, I made my case right there. If that doesn't matter, what does matter? And so be careful. You know, people always, you know, it may seem more spiritual to do all that stuff, but it's not. Growing up Roman Catholic, I thought I encountered Jesus once a week in the wafer. Maybe I made that up. Maybe that's just my impression as a young man, uh, you know, of their teaching. But that's what I believed. I went to confession on Saturday night. I tried not to sin between Saturday night and Sunday morning. So I was holy enough to take the Lord's Supper. And then after that, there was a sigh of relief because I could live again and sin all I wanted to. Uh, That's the practical outgrowth of this kind of theology. It may not intend to be, but that's what happens. So I don't want to get drawn into a, a, a liturgy like that or a ritual like that when I have freedom in Christ and intimacy, I don't want anyone to deliver Christ to me now that I'm a Christian. He lives in me by his Holy Spirit. There is no need for an intermediary. God hates priesthood because we have the priesthood of all believers. All right, rant over. For I received from the Lord, verse 23, that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. Sometime after he was saved on the road to Damascus, Paul spent time alone with Jesus. Uh, Some say he retired into Arabia for a time. He may have received this instruction about the Lord's Supper during that time. Paul was the one who delivered this to the Corinthians. He had founded the church and stayed there for some 18 months before moving on, and he shared the Lord's Supper with them. He said it was the same night Jesus was betrayed, meaning while he was being betrayed. So Judas was gone, betraying Jesus, and then the Lord instituted the last supper, uh, the Lord's supper. And um, there was he and his 11 believers, and the curtain goes up on the new covenant. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in uh, remembrance of me. Since Eden, God has required a sacrificial lamb to temporarily atone for sin. All those lambs anticipated one final lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who would die to take away the sins of the world. His physical body was about to become that final sacrifice for sin. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. By blood, Jesus simply meant his life. Again, there's nothing mystical about his blood. It doesn't have mystical properties. I've heard messages on this before about Jesus' DNA and the mysticism of his blood. It was blood. He was going to die. And the fruit of the vine we drink does not become his blood. The old covenant required the constant blood of animals offered by men The new covenant has been ratified once and for all by the death of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of confusion, uh, there always will be, about being a New Testament Christian. And and then there's the Old Testament with all of its rites and rituals. And people are always trying to draw you back to certain things or saying how important they are. And and so how do you you deal with that? Well, uh, one explanation I heard a while back. Some of you uh, are in an industry or a, a, a profession where there are contracts that are negotiated, right? And so you're under contract, talks about your salary and your benefits and all those kinds of things, until the contract ends midnight on a certain date. And then there's the renegotiation of a contract and everybody gets mad at each other and yells at each other, but they finally settle on something and they sign the new contract and now you go to work and you have benefits and all of that. The new contract voids the old contract. The old contract is gone. You can't go to work and a week later discover, discover that your insurance benefits are worse under the new contract and say, oh, I'd like my benefits back from the old contract. That doesn't exist anymore. There is no old contract. Only what may be carried over. And so that's the contract. That's what, you, that, that's what happens. So we have the new covenant. Example. People say, why don't we keep all ten commandments? We, we don't keep the Sabbath commandment. Well, because you can find the other nine commandments in the new covenant, in the new Testament. What you can't find is the commandment to keep the Sabbath. In fact, quite the opposite. Paul and others say you don't need to keep the Sabbath. And so you can stand over here in the, on, on old covenant ground and say, we have to keep the Sabbath because it was precious to God. And I'm over here saying that's an old contract. That's an old covenant. It it doesn't have anything to do with me. And I I, I I can't go back to that because of what Jesus has done. I hope that helps. So the Lord's Supper, it's a remembrance. It's not a reenactment of what Jesus did on the cross. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. It's more obvious that death is prominent in the original word order of the Greek. It reads, the death of the Lord you proclaim until he comes. Jesus was born to die. His mission was to go to the cross. It wasn't an afterthought or a mistake of some kind. It was necessary in order for mankind to be reconciled to God. On the cross as the lamb of God taking away the sins of the world, Jesus said it is finished and the new covenant era begins. This is the second time Paul uses the words as often I believe they give us total freedom in the frequency and the manner in which we celebrate the Lord's Supper. If you're looking for precedence, the Passover meal that the Lord's Supper followed was an annual celebration. You can show from the book of Acts that some believers celebrated daily. In Corinth, they for sure celebrated weekly. So we can share the bread and cup every day, weekly, monthly. We can share the bread and cup at a gathering of saints or in our homes. To those who are pursuing this rediscovery of the mystery of the Lord's Supper, what I'm saying may sound irreverent, too casual, but it isn't. What's, how can you get more casual than Jesus having a Passover meal with his disciples and then in, you know, telling them, hey, here's what's going to be happening, and this cup and this bread are going to represent as a memorial. This, I mean, it, it was casual. Jesus didn't get formal. He's not the Jesus from Jesus of Nazareth who never blinks. I looked that up one time. I said, Why does this guy look so weird in Jesus of Nazareth? Are you familiar with that mini series? It, it's, it's like in the 80s. Uh, but it was, it was all the rage. It was a mini series about Jesus. And the guy who plays Jesus, the Englishman, appropriately enough, who plays Jesus, never blinks on purpose. They never have him on camera blinking. And that's why he looks so weird. (laughs) I say to you, you must be born again and not blink like me. Of course, I'm doing a Hispanic accent. I don't know why, but anyway. (laughs) That's my default accent. If you find some old communion liturgy and start wearing robes, that doesn't make it reverent. It makes it mystical. There's already a mystery at the Lord's Supper. It's the church as his body on the earth. It's you and me proclaiming his death and living for him till he comes. That's the mystery revealed. There's no other mystery that we're looking for in terms of how does Jesus actually, you know, come into the wafer. Just forget about that. What coming? I say it's the church in the resurrection and rapture prior to the great tribulation and then in his second coming to establish the kingdom. It's everything that the Lord is going to do, coming for us and then coming again. The Lord's Supper, at least in part, is a public proclamation of the Lord's death and of his two returns. We can use it as a time of personal introspection and prayer. Nothing wrong with that. But it's being described here, at least, as a public proclamation. It's a witness. The word proclaim can mean that the Supper proclaims things in its symbolism. It is, in fact, meant to communicate without words the death and the return of Jesus, and therefore, how we ought to live in between. Let's say a non-believer, having no previous church experience, came to church for the first time. At that service, they were exposed to uh, the Lord's Supper and the words of the Lord about his Supper. They would get the idea that, that Jesus died and that we were somehow sharing in that death, but that he was also coming again, that he was still alive and that there was time in between his uh, resurrection and ascension and his coming for us to have to live in him. I mean, you'd have to be pretty astute to to get all that, but I think the Lord could reveal that to you. At any rate, he says, we're proclaiming that. That's what we're proclaiming. It's kind of like in baptism. Baptism is another ordinance in the church and it proclaims something, doesn't it? When you go down under the water and come back out, You're dead and buried with Christ and then alive with him. And so people look at that and they can can figure that out. It's a symbol. It's a witness. And communion, we normally think of it just as our own personal, kind of like the cone of silence comes down, you know, when we're having communion. And that's okay. But it is also a proclamation to anybody there of the Lord's death until he comes. And of course, till he comes has within it the idea of his resurrection and our resurrection. He can't come if he's not alive. And so there's a lot going on that we are showing people. Unless you're in Corinth and you're drunk because you hoarded all your food and you're acting crazy, and then you're not proclaiming this beautiful truth. Verse 27, therefore, whoever eats of this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. He who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. The unworthy manner in this context is being a glutton and a drunk. And so it's pretty easy to examine yourself. That guy over there is a drunken glutton. He's bringing judgment on himself. Guilty of the body and blood of the Lord, as paraphrased, is like part of the crowd that jeered and spit on him at his death. Wow. I got drunk and ate a bunch of lasagna at the potluck and I'm just like the people who sent Christ to the cross? Well, in an analogous sense, yes, because you're treating the the Lord's cross as if it makes no difference to you, as if it's had no effect on you, as if you were a non-believer. Not discerning the Lord's body is referring to his body on earth, the church. Those misbehaving are despising the unity of the body by creating their divisions For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. Sleep is how Paul liked to describe the death of a believer. To be absent from your body is to be immediately, consciously present with Jesus. You're going to one day be resurrected, and so your body that's left behind, we could say it's sleeping, as it were, awaiting his coming. It's not actually sleeping, it's dead. You're alive in heaven, consciously alive and aware. But... uh, Paul wanted to, every every chance he could, he wanted to talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and so he decided he was going to talk about Christians sleeping so that they could anticipate waking up with the Lord. As a temporal, not eternal discipline from their loving Heavenly Father, some of those misbehaving were falling ill, and they were dying. They were not judging themselves, so God stepped in with fatherly discipline. So this had been going on for a while, drunken, gluttonous things going on. And so God gave them a chance to deal with it, either through the leadership or individually. And when nobody was doing anything about it, he said, all right, in this case, here's what I'm going to do. Some of you are going to get sick. I'm going to allow you to be sick. And some of you are going to die so that maybe I can get through to you about how serious this is. Again, it was a discipline. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. In case you were wondering if those misbehaving are going to hell, they weren't. Paul was reminding us that we are no longer among those who are condemned with the world for sin. If you're not a Christian, you're already condemned. You're headed for hell. You've got a one-way ticket to hell. But Jesus is the savior of the whole world, especially those who believe. And if you put your faith in him, then your sins are forgiven. He punches out that ticket and he dresses you for heaven. And he'll take you there with him. And so Paul's saying, hey, you're not condemned with the world anymore because you're saved. But you are being disciplined because God is your father. Common meme on the internet goes something like this. This may come as a shock to you, but let me tell you a little secret. Everything isn't about you. Paul's emphasis throughout his teaching on the Lord's Supper has been corporate, not individual. He's been concerned with our attitude toward others. He described it as an activity that proclaims we are the corporate body of Jesus on equal footing. He spoke of the elements as proclaiming the Lord's death to onlookers as a public testimony, not as a private devotion. The problem that the believers in Corinth were experiencing at the Lord's Supper was due to them thinking too much about themselves and not enough or at all about others. And so you could say the Lord's Supper isn't about you. Wait for one another And the Lord's Supper will be what it ought to be, a witness. The Lord's Supper can be meaningful without being mystical. We don't need to reenact Jesus' body and blood. In fact, that flies in the face of his declaration from the cross, it is finished. We're there to remember his work on the cross, his finished work, and proclaim that until he comes.